Welcome to the We Talk Careers podcast, brought to you by Women in ETFs. This is Christine Delano, and I'm thrilled you've joined me. If you're pursuing excellence in your own career or intrigued by the hustle required for a career on Wall Street, this podcast is for you. We've made all this advice accessible. Grab your own Thrive Guide with a workbook on leadership skills at christinedelano.com. So put aside that massive to-do list and let's get inspired. On this episode, we are talking about how to take the first steps into entrepreneurship. Spoiler alert, it's before you think you're ready. Have you dreamed of starting up your own thing or even getting your team aligned to the next thing? Sit back and have a listen. Of course, if you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. I'm joined today by Katherine Schwartz. She founded Polly's Investment Advisors in 2009. Katie holds a master's certificate in Six Sigma Process Improvement from Villanova University and a BA from Columbia University. She has over 25 years of investment experience, and for 13 years, Katie has volunteered in Winter Park, Colorado with the National Sports Center for the Disabled, teaching blind skiers and skiers with various physical and cognitive challenges. I am so thankful for folks like Katie that opened the mountains to so many skiers. Welcome, Katie, to the We Talk Careers podcast. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm so excited to share a little bit of time with you. Me too. Um, I was just up at Sugarloaf uh, here in Maine. We have a place up there and they have an adaptive program and a horizon ski program. And as an avid skier, I love seeing so many people being able to ski. So what got you into the program? Like, how, how are you involved in that? So I had actually volunteered for Special Olympics a handful of times. And I learned about the adaptive program in Winter Park. And I, w- I was working at Schwab at the time. So I was pretty much Monday through Saturday. But they had a Sunday program where they would take a group of blind skiers up from Denver It was from various schools and um, live-in facilities, but they would take them up to ski for the day. So I would just go up for the day, and that's how I would spend my one day off. Um, I've always felt that it's important to give back, and disabilities can be fairly isolating for people. And it's just amazing to get someone out on the hill because, for example, a blind skier, it's one of the very few times that they're not holding onto someone's arm or using a cane or a guide dog. They're all on their own, just guided by my voice. Mm. And as a skier who sees so much of this out on the mountain, I just think not only, I mean, obviously for those that have these physical or even mental challenges, it's, you know, incredible. It's also incredible for everyone else on the mountain too, to just sort of get this idea of sort of the, the nature that we get to experience, the opportunity that we all have. Um, I brought up uh, some skiers recently where one of them hadn't been skiing before and they were quite timid and they actually saw a skier coming down who was blind and they actually had two, you know, one on each side, sort of probably getting commands. We couldn't hear it from where we were. And that gave my friend like so much sort of courage to like go out there and, and, and try to do her thing as well. So I just think it's just so incredible um, to see what these programs can do for everyone that is either part of it or witnesses it. 
Absolutely. And so many people, when they, they hear about my experience, they, you know, say, oh, that's so great that you did that. But by far, I got way more back than I gave. And it's just so inspiring when you see people who, you know, have pretty significant challenges just in everyday life, get out on the ski hill. It's really amazing. It is. It is because it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging sport. Um, so I thank you. Thank you for so many years of, of giving back that way. And I do completely agree that often the things that we think that we're going to be helping the most, we get helped ourselves. So thanks for that reminder. Today, we're talking about entrepreneurship. And we haven't spoken about that much on the show. We have a number of listeners that are in corporate jobs. And so I think there's a lot that they can learn from you, even if they don't decide to sort of strike out on their own and start their own business. So I'm really excited to get your perspective. So take us back. What was the feelings? Tell us a story about getting started in your own business, because as we know by your bio, you know, you didn't start there. So tell us what that felt like to start up your own business. Yes. As people will see in my bio, I worked for a number of large investment companies and got promoted into various leadership roles. And then I had the opportunity to go work for a startup company out in California and actually headed up operations for them, helped them do a small IPO of stock. And it was kind of at a point in my life where I wanted to get back to the East Coast to be closer to my family. So I took a job with a large investment firm here in South Carolina. And I'll just say that, you know, when I, I worked at Charles Schwab for almost 10 years, and just about every meeting we went into, all they talked about was the client. And this other large firm that I took a position with, you know, they've really focused meetings on revenue. And so unfortunately, I just came to learn that they were more interested in making money for the company as opposed to the clients. So it just, it wasn't a fit for me. Quite frankly, I felt stuck because I didn't want to continue forth. So I started interviewing with companies back in California, but at the same time, because I did want to live on the East Coast and I've always wanted to live at the beach, I just started poking around on the internet and, and looking at what it would take to launch a registered investment advisory firm. Because I thought, you know, I think I have better ideas on how to manage money for people. I'm a big planner and I was very meticulous in kind of managing my corporate career. And I would love to tell you that it was always my dream to start my own firm, <laughs> but it was not because I just started poking around looking at what steps I would have to take. And there was this really weird moment where I was sitting at my desk and I think, I can't remember exactly, I'm pretty sure I was on the South Carolina Attorney General's website because I had already drawn up LLC papers and I was about to upload those. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm not just looking at how to do this. I'm actually starting to do the steps required to, you know, start my RIA. So it was kind of one of those weird kind of surreal moments, but I continued forward. I completed the steps. I registered with the state. I had zero clients. I had zero revenue, but I knew I could build great portfolios for people. 
And at that time, despite how much uncertainty there was, you know, I had enough optimism to actually think that people would pay me to manage their money. So I figured, you know, I'll be able to get out and get some clients and let's see how it goes. I love your story because it really reminds me of kind of the advice that we often give to folks like trying out something new or feeling imposter syndrome in a certain way. It's like, take the next right step, right? You're in the midst of doing all of the pieces, you know, come out of the forest for a moment and just take the next right step. Sometimes the forest is pretty overwhelming, right? Like if you're starting to think about how many clients do I need to make a living and, you know, what are these revenue models and how is this all going to work and everything else? Instead, it was the idea of I'm doing the research, <laughs> I'm filling out the form, I'm uploading the form at any point. I can decide that I'm not moving forward with this, but I'm going to take the next right step as it feels good. And I think that really works in the context of what you said, which I think is so important for our listeners to have kind of heard and digested, was that you were already a planner. You already had the, the idea of what it would take to be successful. So you already had the idea that there was a forest and that all of these guidelines were going to be a part of how you were going to build this business. You just need to now approach each tree as as you moved through it. So take us a little deeper. You've um, you've submitted these forms. You've established your LLC. You know you want to serve clients. You know there's going to be the revenue discussion, but it's really going to be about clients. How did you go about finding your first ones? One of my mentors is a, a gentleman I knew who worked for a very large money management firm, actually up in Cleveland. I called him up and I told him what I was doing. And he said, listen, he said, don't worry about advertising. He said, I call it suit up and show up. Because I didn't know very many people in South Carolina. I'd been to the area to visit but I had maybe one or two acquaintances, I would say. I didn't really have a network of friends and family in Pauly's Island. But so I went out and I started to meet people and I'd get a text or a phone call saying, hey, you know, we're having a few people over for cocktails. Would you like to come? And I would go. I met one woman early on who to this day is one of my closest friends here in Pauly's Island, Joan Weathers. And she started asking me to go play golf. And I'm not a great golfer, okay? <laughs> um, but she would have a group of ladies going to play golf and she'd invite me along. And so I just gradually met people. And one thing, I never led with business. I never, because, you know, the financial services industry, especially the kind of commission-driven side, people can be very aggressive, very salesy. But I knew that what I had put together would work well for people and make them money and control risk. So, you know, I'd kind of wait till they'd ask me and I'd just offer up, hey, if there's ever anything I can do for you, just let me know. Give me a call. Yeah. In writing, that's kind of curiosity seeds too, right? The idea is that you're not going to info dump everything in the first few pages of a novel because no one's going to get into it, right? You need to sort of offer up little bits of what you do and why it's important and, you know, make that sort of offering to your, 
to your reader, so similar it feels to establishing those first relationships that maybe or maybe not turn into clients. Absolutely. And the other thing I did, I was very deliberate. I mean, I had a whole list of potential names for my company and everyone says, well, why didn't you just name the company after yourself? And I thought that for me, I wanted to use a name that spoke to like who my first clients were. And all of my first clients were right here on Pauly's Island. We have clients across the country now. And I have to confess, I also did a lot of research to make sure that people could find me online. So I used the loggerhead sea turtle. You know, there's a big thing around here with the turtle nesting and conservation. And so I wanted to build a brand that people wanted to be a part of. But again, you you can't just take that, if you build it, they will come attitude. You have to put yourself out there. And the suit up and show up is so great. We did a episode with Elizabeth Kashner on showing up. And she just really talked about the power of giving every opportunity 100% of you and did a great job with it. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I love the suit up show up because it really, it, it really not only addresses the showing up, but sort of the preparation part. What is it that you need to suit up to do? And how do you need to prepare for the meeting or the opportunity you have in front of you? Absolutely. And it certainly did not improve my golf game. <laughs> I'm a terrible golfer, but it definitely helped me meet people and, and build my business. Yes. And you can always offer the win to somebody else. There, there you go. There's a good strategy. Absolutely. So when you think about your own sort of steps into building and running your own business, I know when we talked, I thought a lot about how opportunistic you were in such a good way. You know, you just took advantage of so many different things in your environment, different relationships, um, different skills that you already had to sort of build it up. But maybe take our listeners through sort of opportunistic entrepreneurship. What does that actually look like? What are some of the things that you know that are important to not only building but maintaining your business? Christine, that's a great question. And I love how you use the the phrase opportunistic entrepreneur, because it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole. We all receive so many emails and phone calls and requests for meetings. And for me, I think it's really important, regardless of what role someone's in, to just hone that decision making so that you're pulling on the biggest levers that are going to have the most impact. So as an example, when I started my firm, I had two fund strategies in place. They're just long-only equity funds, which is a fancy way for saying we just buy stocks. But I wanted to be accountable for the performance I was delivering for clients. So as part of the JOBS Act in 2012, there was something kind of nestled in there that anything you read online, all it talked about was, oh, this is to open crowdfunding, you know, for smaller startups. But there was a little tiny tidbit in there that I I dug into it. And as a part of the Jobs Act, they were lifting the ban on hedge fund advertising. And so I did some more digging and I discovered that if I formalized my two funds into limited partnerships, and filed them with the SEC under Reg D Rule 506C, 
I could actually advertise the performance. So I saw that as an opportunity to promote my entire business because up to this point, I was just managing money for clients and separately managed accounts. So basically, if they had an IRA, they'd move it to me. And then I'd put them in these portfolios, these basket of stocks. But by launching the limited partnerships, the Pauli's Dividend Fund and the Pauli's Growth Fund, I was able to advertise the performance. So it just, from there, Christine, it snowballed. I received an email from a firm in West Palm Beach saying, hey, we're you know launching this platform. We want to look at your strategies. So the platform they were launching was at TAMP, which is a third-party asset management platform. So basically they bring different money strategies together and then other advisors can go and build customized portfolios. It was a cold email I received. I thought it was worth digging deeper. And fast forward today, I was one of the first 33 managers hired onto this platform. I have a license agreement with them. And um, I mean, here I am, Polly's Capital, along with the Boston Company and Fred Alger. And so I'm in a position, immediately I get a press release out to the local paper. It just kind of ups me. It takes me forward. And then, um, so that platform today is known as SmartX. They they rebranded and so then last year, another cold email from a woman named Alexandra McGuigan, who some people who are listening may know from 100 Women in Finance. So she is the founder of a new institutional product that's highlighting female portfolio managers. So if you go out and do a little digging, you can find lots of data that supports that women portfolio managers outperform their male counterparts but they're underrepresented. And so what Alexandra did that, you know, they screened from over 60,000 funds globally filtered for women filtered for, you know, a certain time period of a track record and of course performance. And so I made it down to the final six. So she's launching the woman fund. So there's six portfolio managers and she's got it scaled so that it can accept institutional money. So, you know, those couple of examples are just, listen, I've made plenty of mistakes and I'm happy to share them with you in a little bit here, but you've got to trust your gut. And it's those mistakes and watching the mistakes of others that helps you hone that sense. It's not about always like doing the right thing. We all make mistakes and it's just a way to make that gut instinct better. Right. And you had hit on the word opportunistic and I kind of want to circle back to that. Because you even said, oh, you know, just kind of a cold email comes in. But if we all just sit back and wait for the cold emails, nothing happens, right? So you're out doing the job every day. You're out, you have established these funds, you have a track record, you know, you're doing your work and doing it well on these pieces, which gives opportunity for opportunities to come, right? So I think that's what's, you know, so engaging about this is that folks can maybe feel like, oh, you know, I'm getting the work done every day. I'm working toward opening my own business or I'm working toward there's a a new line within the corporation I'm at, or I'm just attaining where I'm supposed to be and, and the kind of work that I'm doing in my career. 
But by doing that, you're giving the opportunity for folks to find you and for you to find them. So I think that word opportunistic is really important because you can't make everything happen. Um, I was just talking um, right before we go on about about skiing and um, it was a really icy weekend this um, this weekend and I was saying how much I was gripping the snow and how my husband could kind of fly over the ice and I tend to just sort of like double down when I get to it, which is probably a bad thing, but fear gets to me a little bit. And, you know, he was like, control much. (laughs) And I'm like, I know, you know, sometimes I just feel like in our careers or things that we do, we're looking to sort of control all these outcomes. But sometimes we just need to take advantage of things that are coming to us. Absolutely. So as you think about your business now and how you've grown, what is some practical step-by-step advice that you would have for the listeners in growing their own opportunities? I think it's difficult to, for me to answer that question and actually give a step-by-step guide because each of the listeners have their own style and work in different industries. But I think the first thing that comes to mind with that question, Christine, is that it's important to have like guiding points for assessing opportunities. And the most important one is to know your values and stick to them. So I've got a client who called me last week. He had retired during the pandemic from a large company and he had like half of his portfolio with me. But when he retired, he moved his 401k to Fidelity. And yeah, I was a little disappointed to not be able to help him with that. But he called me week before last and he said, you know, my performance, I was down 14% last year. You know, I was down only four or five with you. I want to move this account, which I was thrilled, of course. But during the conversation, he reminded me that last year when we were having this kind of pre-retirement conversation, he also had a very substantial pension and he had the choice to either take a monthly check for the rest of his life and for his wife's, there was a survivor benefit, or he could take a lump sum and roll it into an IRA. And what I told him was to take the monthly check. And when he rolled his 401k to Fidelity, which is a great firm, I mean, Fidelity is a a great firm, but, you know, they were kind of pressuring him to take the lump sum and move it over to them so that they could manage it, which, you know, wasn't necessarily in his best interest. So, It wasn't just the fact that that account underperformed last year, but the fact that way back then, I gave him the advice that was in his best interest instead of saying, oh, move it over to me. I'll manage it. So I think when you're building a business, I think it's easy to kind of jump ahead. And I mean, I tend to be impatient by nature. And I I think people make the mistake of just trying to get really big, really fast. But I think if you focus on being really good, then the growth will follow. Right. So these guiding points for accessing opportunities, you know your values, you're going to stick to them. So even if you could make a few extra bucks on something, you know, in the beginning, we established that although revenue was important, your clients were going to come first, right? You were going to think about your business in terms of serving your clients. So knowing that you were giving the advice that would enable your client to have the best outcome, that would be one of your assessing points um, for the opportunities ahead of you. What else do you have for our listeners in terms of guiding points? 
Yeah. So back to that idea of, you know, focus on being really good. You know, don't, don't get ahead of yourself and focus on being big. You know, I've mentored a couple of guys in the past and, you know, they manage money for family members and they have this kind of, I've built it, they will come mentality. And they just, they really haven't gotten anywhere with it because they're not proactive about it. And I think they're just looking at the end game instead of the steps to get there. Um, And most firms, RIAs or, you know, privately managed funds have very high minimums. And when I started my firm back in 2010, I felt like that wasn't the right thing to do because I think everyone should have access to whatever business it is, good products and services. And I certainly understand kind of segmentation and, you know, the, the business economies behind certain things. But for me, I felt like it was the right thing to not have minimums. And there was probably, which some of my largest clients have been referred to me by some of my smallest clients, but it was probably, I want to, can I tell you a real quick story from a long time ago? Of course. So I worked at Dean Witter back in the early nineties out in Denver and a broker had taken a transfer to a bank and he asked me to help one of his clients and Carl and Peggy, I'll share their name. They're they're I'm sure in heaven by now, because it was a long time ago and you know, they were older. They had I don't know, like $30,000 in their account. It was fully invested in mutual funds. And so I wasn't going to get, you know, Dean Witter was a commission-based model. So I wasn't going to make any money off of these clients, but they wanted to come in like twice a year, I think, just to go over their account. And so I remember I called them, it was between Christmas and New Year's. I called them because I knew they wanted to get together and Carl answered the phone. So I'm talking to him, I'm like checking in, how's it going? And I said, okay, let's set up a time because I know you guys want to come in. And he said, okay, well, let me check with Peggy. And so Peggy called me back later that day and we set up the meeting, which was within the next few days. And right before she hung up, she said, oh, she said, well, Carl did tell you he won the lottery, didn't he? And, and so, you know, and it couldn't have happened to two nicer people because the beginning part of this story is that he had helped his sister for number, a number of years. She was living in an assisted living facility and they would go see her every day and take her dinner. And when she passed away, she left a very sizable estate to the local animal shelter and didn't leave anything to him. Mm. And I could always tell he would never say anything bad about her, but I could always tell it bothered him. And so again, right. It's like the craziest story, but it couldn't have happened to two nicer people. And Christine, when they came in, all they wanted to do was set up college savings accounts for their grandkids. And so I think when I started my firm, I mean, gosh, 20 years later, my math is pretty close I'm sure they were in the back of my mind, not because, you know, a small client turned into a big client and it meant more revenue for my firm, but just that everybody needs access to good help. Yes. Thank you for sharing about Carl and Peggy and just that someone like them could win like that too. And that, you know, they're thinking about the next generation. Ah, that's, that's fantastic. It was so good to hear. So in the beginning of the show, you, you alluded a little bit to, 
sort of lessons learned or sort of mistakes that you might have made help our listeners learn through something that may have been a little bit more challenging in your career? Sure. And in, in thinking about this question, Christine, I think I'm going to share two different examples with you, if that's okay. One where things didn't go so well and another where they worked out. So the first one, before the pandemic, I had hired a service provider to provide the administrative services for my hedge funds. And I interviewed, I don't know, five or six different companies. I did solid due diligence and I made my decision and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was a disaster from the beginning. They made mistakes constantly. And I was paying a lot of money to this firm and I was spending more time checking their work and having them go back and rework than I was doing before. Cause I, I did this work on my own before I brought them in, but they clearly had overpromised and under delivered and they made a very significant mistake, which I caught of course, that would have affected my clients adversely. And so, you know, I'm very thorough and thank goodness I caught it. And I went back to the drawing board (laughs) and now I've got a great firm in place, but I share the story because, you know, I really liked the partner and the reason I share it is because like, don't go with like your buddy, like he closed the deal. He's like, Oh, come have a glass of wine. And you know, that whole kind of wine and dine thing is great for building relationships. But I share the story, like, don't go with your buddy. Cause like everybody's got a guy, right? And so you've got to really, again, work and develop your gut. Um, You've got to trust your gut. And, you know, my gut didn't wave any flags during that circumstance. But, you know, we all learn from our mistakes. And, oh, I don't know how long ago this was. I think five or six years ago. A couple times a year, someone reaches out to me. They're interested in buying my firm or merging So this one firm had reached out and, you know, I checked their broker check. I did all my homework before I even take the phone call and things look good. And they were based in Raleigh, North Carolina. So it got to the point where, you know, it seemed like it was worth a continued conversation. And so they wanted me to come to Raleigh for a full weekend, stay in the guest house on the owner's horse ranch. They were going to have a private caterer, all this stuff. And so I said, you know, what works for me is I'd like to come to Raleigh and I'll just come into your office for, you know, a few hours one morning. And then let's see if it makes sense to continue the conversation. And they got a little aggressive about it. And I just knew, I just, in my gut, I knew there was something that was off. And so I discontinued the conversation. And fast forward, within a year, I kid you not, the FBI had raided their office. And, you know, the founder, I mean, Christine, he was stealing money from his father. So, you know, it's, I, I think, again, we all learn from our mistakes, but advice for anyone in any position, just really work on developing your gut and trust yourself. Yes. Trusting that gut, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean, what a great opportunity. Sure. Like a horse ranch with wine, but you know, like maybe let's start with an initial conversation to see how we align. Right. And if you kind of come back to what your 
guiding points were, which knowing your values and sticking to them and knowing that, you know, your first and foremost is your service to your clients, understanding that business first is, you know, so it all sort of makes sense with the lens of looking at it now. But back then I could see how anyone could be sort of wined and dined into situations of, of doing business with them. So great story to share. Thank you so much. I could actually continue talking to you, you know, all afternoon. I mean, this is just so much fun, Katie, but we have gotten to the end of our time here. So I've got one last question for you. Um, And it's what we ask everyone as regular listeners know, I'm a writer and just absolutely love what fiction can do and sort of presenting stories and characters to folks where we can sort of try on people's lives and and really discover more about who we are um, through the stories we read. So I am both a lover of fiction and nonfiction. So tell us, what are you reading and, and why would you recommend it to our listeners? I absolutely love to read and I really try to carve time out to do so. And there's one book that I try to reread at least once a year. It's called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And the story, it's kind of, it's almost like the little Buddha story. It's a little similar to Siddhartha. And it's a, it's a quick, easy read. You can read it on the beach. You could read it on an airplane. Super easy to get through. What I love about it is it's about a challenging but opportunistic journey um, that this boy takes. And so it's just so inspiring to me because we all need to be reminded that, yeah, we're going to have some tough times, but we're going to get through it and good things are going to happen. And also, probably more importantly, it's a really good reminder that just we're all just a smaller part of something very much bigger. I agree. And what a great book to reread in the different chapters of our life to continue to be optimistic. Thank you for that recommendation. That is not one that I've read, but I'm absolutely adding it to my own personal list. Thank you, Katie, for coming on today. Thank you so much for sharing so much about your life and your rise to just guiding one of the best RA firms out there. So thank you so much for being with us. Christine, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much. And thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. I hope this is not just information, but you let it be transformational in how you think about your career. I'm rooting for you. To find out more about diversity, opportunity, and events in the exchange-traded fund industry, please visit womeninetfs.com. And while it lasts, be sure to grab your Thrive Guide on becoming the leader you want to be. You can download it at with a K, christinedelano.com. If you haven't subscribed to We Talk Careers podcast, please make sure you do so. And if there's a topic you'd like us to tackle, let us know. All links are in the show notes. Thank you for listening.